you happen to have your Bible, then uh, you can join with me as we turn to James this morning. If you were here last week, you'll know that we have hit pause on the John series. We got to the end of chapter four, and we said we're going to hit pause there, and we're going to pick up John again at the start of September, whenever the growth groups will be continuing and able to follow that through. So today, we are starting our new series in the book of James. Um, the book of James is a little small book near the, the end of the New Testament, and it can be quite difficult to find. So if you're flicking your way through, it might be easier to start at the back, Revelation, and work your way backwards through uh, John and, and Peter, and you'll find yourself in James. Or if you happen to stumble across Hebrews, it's just after that. James. And this morning, we're just going to read four verses at the start of this letter. This is the word of the Lord. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. We give thanks to God for his word, and we're going to take some time later on to to think about and ponder these words. If you have a Bible, then please do open up in James, and we're going to be working through those verses together this morning. And here is what I think we're going to see as we spend some time in these verses in James. I think what James wants this morning is that we would relearn how to count, relearn how to count so that we can grow to be faithful, mature disciples, okay? That's what I think we're going to see in James this morning. Let me pray and ask for God's help. Father, we thank you that your word speaks. And so, Father, we need your help to hear. We need your spirit to give us eyes that will see. And Lord, might our hearts be humble and receptive to what it is you might be saying to us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One, two, three, four, five, number blocks. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, number blocks. One, and another one is two, and another one is me. That's three. Five, four, three, two, one, time for number fun. You can count on us with the number blocks. And <laughs> you should hear what I can do with practice, you know. <laughs> now I realize that many in the room have no idea what has just happened there, and they are thinking, I'm not sure where I am. Well, some of you, however, will know because you watch this regularly on TV, some of the boys and girls. Uh, I'm sure you watch Number Blocks. Number Blocks is a, is a children's TV program which helps them with their numbers. It teaches them how to, how to count. It's a big hit in our house. I think he's always watching it. <laughs> and, um, and that's the, the lyrics to the theme tune, just in case you're kind of wondering what was going on. And for a child, learning how to count is really important, isn't it? It's really important because we do it all the time. Throughout the day, we're, we're constantly counting. You know, the, the alarm clock goes off and you're thinking, how many more minutes till I have to get up? <laughs> how much change should the cashier give me in the shop? You're coming into church and there's a few cars in front of you and you, 
You count how many spaces are left in the car park and will there be one for me? You know, we're, we're always counting, aren't we? And yet it's, it's not just little children who have to learn how to count. No, in fact, today we'll see that James is saying that for all of us, we need to learn how to count. And the reason is that we can often get mixed up in our counting. And in fact, if we don't think and, and, and count the way that the Bible teaches us to count, well, then we get our sums all mixed up. Listen to what James has to say, verse 2. Count, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Well, we hear that and we say, what? I mean, James, are, are you sure? Are you sure? You've got this counting thing nailed. Should you really be teaching us how to count, James? Count it all joy when we meet trials? James, should it not be the other way around? Should it not be counted all joy when things are going really well? Count it all joy when we meet the trials? James, are you sure you know how to count? But you see, the thing is, James does know how to count. He does know how to count. And he knows how we're to count as Christians. And so this morning, I want us all to head back to the classroom. For some of us, we're going to relearn how to count. For others, it's going to be one of those reminder lessons, you know, like a revision class. Because sometimes with these big sums, we can easily forget the way to work them out. As we start back in the classroom, it seems like it makes more sense to start at number one, doesn't it? So let's go back to verse one, and we'll work through these verses in sequence. Verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Right at the start of this uh, new book, we are given some key details. Firstly, we'll see that this is actually a letter, okay? And the very first thing that we're told is that the letter comes from James. Now, this is slightly different than, than we would do if we were writing a letter today, um, but with ancient letters, this is how they go about it. They started with who it's from. And to be honest, the more I think about it, the more I think, that really makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you get a, a postcard, or if you get a, a letter, or someone's sent you a card, what do you do? Well, the first thing you want to know is who it's from. And so where do you have to look? You have to look to the very end of the letter. And so it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? To put it right at the top. That's what James does. He tells us that it's from himself. James, it's a letter from James. But which James? That's always a good question, isn't it? You get a letter and it says it's from James. You want to say, well, oh, which James is it? Which James is it? And sometimes it's really important to include like a, a surname, uh, or in Bible times, I'm the son or the daughter of, of so-and-so, or brother and sister of whoever it might be. But sometimes, sometimes to do that would be overkill, wouldn't it? Um, I, I've got a, a brother called James. And so growing up, if, if mum was to say uh, something like, is, is James coming in for dinner? Well, it wasn't like it threw our house into chaos. We weren't thinking, well, which James is she meeting? Is James Nesbitt coming for dinner? Or uh, maybe the comedian James Corden, is he coming for dinner? No, we were always quite sure she was really referring to my brother James. And so when James writes this letter, and doesn't include the equivalent of a surname, it's because it must be pretty obvious to the early church whom he is writing to, just who this James actually is. There were two Jameses that could kind of possibly fit the bill. Uh, Jameses that were well enough known and carried enough authority to write a letter like this to the early church. One was James, the brother of John, but he was executed 
in AD 44, which seems to rule him out because this letter seems to be written somewhere between 46 and 48 AD. And so it's widely believed, the church has always believed that this was a letter from James, the brother of Jesus. Now, this James hadn't always been a believer. In fact, in John's gospel, for example, he notes that not even Jesus' brothers believed in him. But at some point, James has come to believe. Perhaps it was even after a, a meeting with the resurrected Christ, recorded in 1 Corinthians, that he came to believe. And it's one of those things that from an earthly perspective, we, we struggle to grasp this, don't we? We struggle with this. How could someone who lived with Jesus, you know, he lived with him up close in the same house, watching him all the time, how could they not believe and then believe? What's, what's happened for that to take place? And yet, as we've just kind of been working our way through uh, the first four chapters in John's gospel, we know the answer, don't we? Because he needed to be born again. That's what was going to make the difference. He needed to be born again because, remember, that's a work of the Spirit. Our hearts are spiritually dead until this takes place, this work of the Spirit. And the work of the Spirit brings about a new life, and without that, we would never choose to follow after Jesus. But this had clearly happened. He had believed and received Jesus Christ as his Lord. And it's this James, this James who is the half-brother of Jesus, who is writing this letter. But, but notice how James introduces himself in the letter. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, if, if, uh, if ever there was a, a time to name drop your family connections, surely this would have been it. We've just had Joe Biden on the island of Ireland, and he's been uh, very, very, very happy to play up his family links, you know. Well, surely, James, if you're going to write a letter, you're going to say, hey, do you know who I am? I'm actually a half-brother of Jesus. And yet, for James, his biological family links to Jesus do not put him on a higher plane than any other followers of Jesus. Because like them, how does James see it? Have a look. What does he say? He says, I'm a servant. That's what he says. Or we might translate uh, the Greek word there as a slave, because the word carries with it the understanding of one's whole life being, being owned by another. And so James is humble. He doesn't claim the fame and the connection. He claims to be a servant. Biological links or not, this is his identity. All of him has been given over to Jesus. I wonder, is that you this morning? Could you say, yeah, that's me. Humbly, a servant. I look around church this morning, and I see that I'm no higher than anybody else. I'm just a servant, just like them. I wonder, can you say that this morning? All of you has been given over to Jesus. And actually, it's really interesting, whose slave Jesus, uh, James reveals himself to be? He says, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a servant of both, okay? And James puts being a servant of God, the Father, on par with being a servant of Jesus. And it's, if, it's as if right at the start of James, in a simple way, right at the start of his letter, he establishes that Jesus is actually the Son of God. And so the, the person of Christ is his master. So the letter is written by James, Okay written by James, the humble brother of Jesus, 
who becomes a key leader within the Jerusalem uh, church. And so that's who it's from. If that's who it's from, well, then who's it written to? Well, James writes, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So it seems here that James uh, is writing to the Christians who have been scattered outside of Israel, probably mostly Jews who have come to follow Jesus, but it could also be including some Gentiles who have come to faith in Jesus, who have been engrafted into the great big family of God's and here are now part of that true Israel. And so he's writing to a church that it's, well, they're geographically divided, aren't they? Uh, people who have been scattered following exile and the persecution of the early church. And so there are people who are mostly living as exiles in the land that they now find themselves in. He's writing to people who I'm sure were longing to be able to come back home. And James says to these people, greetings. Now, we might think that's quite a formal greeting. It wasn't really a formal greeting in that sense. It was really a saying, be well. And it's at this point that we jump into verse 2, okay? And maybe actually at this point we could say, as we work our way through James, what you're going to see is this is a really practical letter, okay? James is a really practical letter. James wants to show believers just how faith is, is worked out in practice. And that's why we've called this series Faith at work. You can see it up behind me, faith at work. Because what we will see is, throughout James, he's saying, faith has to be worked out. You cannot say that you have faith and it not change how you live, not change how you, you, you live your everyday life. No, faith has to be worked out. And so James teaches us how to do that. Faith at work. Because faith always works. There is no part of our life that is not to come under the lordship of Jesus. That's what we're going to see. James had given all of himself to Christ. He was all over a servant. And that is what we are to be. So what's the very first thing that James wants to say? The letter's arrived. It's being read out to, to many of these Christians who are in exile, remember? who've been split up from family, maybe their parents, their brothers, their sisters, their spouses, their children, and their friends, their neighbors, maybe their employers, many who are finding things really hard financially. Maybe they've lost all of their worldly possessions due to having been forced out of town. Maybe whatever inheritance they were expecting has now just been wiped from the slate because of this new faith that they have in Jesus Christ. And what's the first thing James has to say to a group of people like that? And that's when we hit verse 2. And James says, count it all joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And surely to those who, who were listening to James when they read this letter for the first time, this must have been a hard maths lesson. Count it all joy. That word count in the Greek, or in the NIV, it's translated as consider. That's really helpful, isn't it? Or you could translate it as think think, okay? It's an imperative, it's command. Think, think it all joy. And notice what it does not say. It does not say feel. It doesn't say feel it all joy. The trials do not feel joyful, do they? No. And often when trials come, it's our feelings that seem to, you know, take top spots. But the message to the Christian believers is that they are to choose to see it, to, to think about it in a very particular way. We're not just to hand over the reins of our life over, over to our feelings and say, feelings, you just run off, you're in control now. 
No, 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 we need to be careful, but that's not the case. But we also need to be careful that we don't mix up joy and happiness, okay? Because joy is not happiness. It's not that a great big smile should come across our, fa- uh, our face every time we come across an- another trial. That would, that would just be bizarre, wouldn't it? David Gibson, in his excellent little book on James, it's called Radically Whole. If you're looking for a book to kind of read alongside the series, really recommend that one. David Gibson, Radically Whole. And when it comes to defining joy, I, I think what he says is really helpful. And this is how he defines joy. He says, joy is the deep settled knowledge that God is in this, that nothing he sends me, nothing is outside his care and his loving purpose for me. Did you hear that? Joy is the deep settled knowledge that God is in this, that nothing he sends me, nothing is outside his care and his loving purpose for me. And we are to count it all joy. That's what James says, isn't it? And notice too that James gives them assurance. Do you see that in the text? He gives them assurance. Perhaps it's not the assurance that you might want to hear as you read James uh, as a disciple. And the assurance is this. The assurance is that you will indeed face trials. Do you spot that? When you meet trials. When you meet trials. It's not an if, is it? You see, the trials, they will come. That's what James says. It's not like a and it's not like a school inspection either. You know, uh, where, the, where the school inspectors are, are coming in, you, you get everything ready for them. And if the inspection goes well, well, then you know that they're not going to be back for a few years, okay? Well, the trials that come aren't like that. It's not like once you have one trial and it goes well, well, then you can be sure that nothing else is coming for a, a period of time. No. Well, these trials, they keep coming, don't they? Various kinds of trials. All sorts of shapes and sizes. It's a bit like this. Maybe you um, want to do some DIY at home and you're, you're going to get a piece of facelift. So you, you go to the home decor shop, you head to the paint shop, and um, well, what they give you is a, a color chart. All the different colors of paint that are options for your home. And there's, there's, they're endless, aren't they? There's, there's some really, really dark colors, and there's some really, really light colors, and then there's like, there's like everything in between colors you didn't even know existed. Just there. On this point, there's also color blocks, which is another links with the number of blocks. You can, you can look that up at some point. Whole host of different colors, right? And, and trials are a bit like that, okay? It seems that some trials, well, the tests are pretty light, okay? They're like the light colors. But then there's some trials, and they are really, really extreme. They are incredibly difficult. They are like the dark, dark, dark colors in the chart, aren't they? And sometimes as we watch on at someone's life, it, it's like the dark color after the dark color after the dark color. Sometimes when you read through the Psalms, it starts off and things are, things are pretty bleak for the Psalmist, but then it gets worse. What James says to the Christian, we should expect trials. The trials of various kinds are going to come. And I think it's really helpful that he doesn't actually give us specifics, does he? Because for those whom he was writing to first, and now as we read it, well, our minds can jump to the kinds of trials that, that maybe we know today, or the trials that we have known, or the trials that will come our way. 
But notice verse 3, these trials produce something. So what is it they produce? Verse 3, for we know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You see, James talks about trials as a test. Some of you work in testing. I know that's your your thing. You test a component in a factory or uh, part of a product that you're producing to make sure that's the real deal uh, before it goes into manufacturing. And it's a good idea. I'm sure it has been dreamt up by those drawing out the plans. But whenever it's made up on the, plat- on the, on the factory floor, well, then you can see now there's some big flaws here. And so testing is really important, isn't it? And it shows us if something really works. And when it comes to our faith, without it being tested, well, then it's impossible to know if we actually have real faith or not, isn't it? Unless you're actually tested, it's, it's impossible to know. I mean, I could stand here at the front and I could, I could make a, a great statement. I could say, I am the fastest runner in Ireland, right? Okay? Now, unless I'm tested against some other really fast runners, you won't know if that's true. Unless already you've looked me up and down and you have done a test with your eyes and you have said, Jeff, that's not true. <laughs> It's not true, is it? Or maybe let's take another example. Let's think about patience, right? Patience, you might say, well, I'm a patient person. Any of us might like to think that we're a patient person. We might say we're a patient person. But it's only whenever something happens at the speed that we didn't want it to happen, or it doesn't go in the way that we planned it would go, it's only then that we'll see if we're really a patient person or not. When all things are going well and and good, We can say we're the patient person, but without patience being tested, we have no idea, do we? Perhaps Sunday morning, trying to get out for church is a good time to test, I'm a patient man, I'm a patient woman. Without testing, we don't know if it's real, do we? But if we run that race and we win, or if we face the temptation to lose our temper and we don't, we show self-control, well, then we're exercising the muscles that show that there is something to what we claim. We're proving them. They get stronger. And you can persevere. When the next test comes, you can persevere. Well, this morning we are back to the classroom with James. He is teaching us to count, but he is also preparing us for that class test that Aaron was talking about. Because the class test is coming to us all. Everyone is going to sit down. And you see, notice that it's your faith that's being tested in the trials. Do you spot that? That's what's being tested. And that's where the joy comes, okay? We can kind of sometimes get confused here, but that's where the joy comes. The joy comes is, is not from the pain itself, okay? That would be somewhat perverted, wouldn't it, if you just were enjoying the pain? No, no, that's not what we're supposed to do. No, we... We don't rejoice in pain, absolutely not. But rather we choose to, to think, to, to count it joy because of the faith that is produced. The faith that is proved to be there, the faith that has been tested, but also the faith that grows. Verse 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And here's what I want you to see. I want you to see trials have purpose, don't they? Trials are not purposeless. That would be horrific, wouldn't it? To think that you were going through trials and they had no purpose whatsoever. Well, as Christians, we see that our our trials have purpose. And the purpose is God testing our faith. And we're supposed to see that that leads to um, steadfastness 
And that is supposed to lead us to becoming fully grown, mature Christians, mature disciples. Did you see that? It's to have an effect. And the effect is that we might be perfect and complete. And the idea of complete here is you know, sound, okay? Um, do you know, uh, you've got to check your oil tank and you tap it, okay? And if there's oil in it, well, then you say, oh, it's sound, okay? It's, you know, there's something in there. It's not just the shell, okay? That's what you hope when you go to the oil tank, isn't it? You hope you don't have to order more oil, unless you're obviously selling oil, and I know some of you do, in which case you're very much hoping that it's empty. But what we're, we're hoping for, uh, for Christians is mature Christians, sound Christians. You, you tap them on the outside, and, and you know this is consistent the whole way through. They're mature. Well, that's the effect that trials and testing are supposed to have for us as Christians. They're supposed to be part of the process that God uses to cause us to grow, to cause our faith to increase so that we might mature in faith and be consistent. We might be solid. We might be sound. You might tap us and say, yes, a mature Christian. Think of someone in the Bible. Think of Daniel, (laughs) Uh, someone who knew what it was to be living in exile, uh, divided from his people, longing to be back in Jerusalem. He he was a man who knew the color chart of suffering pretty well, didn't he? Oh, yeah. And yet, as you read through Daniel, you have to wonder, if Daniel 1 hadn't came, where he had that food test, and he was faithful, well, when it comes to that much bigger test, and he's going to be thrown to the lions, would he have made the same decision? Would he have been ready? Or was it that he needed the other tests in order to strengthen his faith so that he would stand when the others came. You see, the thing is, I think Daniel had learned to count, hadn't he? Through his life, he had learned to count. And so too are we. We are supposed to learn to count. We're supposed to count it all joy. Some of you are here this morning, and you're going through a very, very particular testing moment at the moment. It's really hard. Really hard. certainly does not feel good. The tears that you have been shedding are not tears of happiness, and nor should they be. And maybe you might be tempted to say, well, Jeff, this, this teaching on, on trials, tell me that before my trials, tell me that after my trials, but I don't want to hear it now. I can't hear it now. And yet, I want you to look and see that James writes to people who are in the midst of trials now. He's writing to people who are who are really struggling now. And he is saying, this is truth that you need to know now in the midst of suffering. Yes, it's great to to learn it before you're suffering. Brilliant, really helpful. It's great to be able to look back with a different lens at your suffering, absolutely. But we also need the truth in the moment to cling to. The truth that trials are to test and show and grow faith. The truth that trials come with a good purpose from the hand of your heavenly Father, and that that good purpose is to grow mature disciples. You see, in the midst of suffering, we still need truth. We still need truth. God is in control. He is sovereign over all things. He is always good. He is always good, and God has a good purpose in the trials that come. 
See, as Christians, we are to count differently, aren't we? We're to count things differently than the world out there counts. And the things that, that feel like a heavy loss are often the very same things that God uses to bring about rich gain. Rich gain. No, we certainly wouldn't choose them, absolutely not. But doesn't that help us in trials to know that God knows what he's doing? He has his purpose. Joni Erickson Tata, whom I'm sure many of you are very, very familiar with her story. After a diving accident at the age of 17, she was paralyzed from the shoulders down, unable to move her arms or her legs. And listen to what she says 50 years after her accident. She says, my displaced hip and scoliosis are sheepdogs that constantly snap at my heels, driving me down the road to Calvary, where I die to the sins Jesus died for. Sure, I have a long way to go before I am whom God destined me to be in glory, but thankfully my paralysis keeps pushing me to strive to reach for that heavenly prize. She continues, grace softens the edges of past pains, helping to highlight the eternal. And what you're left with is peace that's profound, joy that's unshakable, and faith that's ironclad. You see, Joni has learned to count, hasn't she? She sat in the classroom and she's learnt. She's been tested, and she's learnt, but not to count as the world counts. See, today James has been taking us all back to the classroom, hasn't he? And he's been teaching us how to count. He's been preparing us for the class tests that we are all going to sit, because James wants us to grow. James wants us to mature, to be mature disciples, mature Christians. And my prayer is that we might know God's grace at work in our lives so that when the trials come, of various kinds, and they will come, that we would have eyes of faith, which enable us to count it as joy because of how we know God is at work within them. Let's pray. Lord, each of us here today have, have known, are experiencing, or will soon face trials of various kinds. And so, Lord, we cry out and ask that you would give us grace, give us grace to count them as joy and to grow in faith into mature believers so that these trials might have their full effect on us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.